Well, we are beginning, uh, we began last week actually, a new sermon series on real questions. And so we asked our community here and, and at large uh, to send us in questions. What real questions of faith do you have? Uh, and that it's a safe place to ask any question. And so we want to be a place where people feel uh, that it's safe to wrestle with their faith and, and ask tough questions. And so today, our question is, why is it so important to so many Christians that someone go to hell? Which is a, a very forthright question. Uh, and it actually makes sense of, of data if there was a research study in the U.S. about uh, how many people believed in a heaven or how many people believed in hell. And on average, the average American, I think it said 72% of Americans said that they believe in heaven. But only 58% of U.S. adults said that they believed in hell. So there's a discrepancy of like belief in heaven versus hell. And uh, as you got into different religious traditions, evangelical Christianity was the most likely to say that they believed in hell. Uh, 82% said that they believed in hell. And so uh, it becomes a marker that stands out of like, what is up with you guys and hell? And particularly, why are some of you seemingly so like positive about this? Of like, not just like, here's something that I'm wrestling with of like, we've believed this and what do I do do with this? How do I understand who God is with this kind of a doctrine? Um, But some people are like, no, there's a hell, and they're, they're not too like, ashamed about that. They, they feel really confident about it. And so people wonder, like, what on earth is up with all these Christians? And it's not just everyday Christians, because I think more everyday Christians are a little bit more um, mild about their doctrine of hell, of how often it comes up or what they say about it. Uh, but maybe you've seen uh, some kind of extremist groups who go and picket at different kinds of events with signs, some of them with signs that say God hates, and then it fills in the blank with whoever they're upset with at that moment. Uh, and also signs that say, uh, I saw this in the sign, said, you're going to hell. Which is just a very peculiar attitude to have. Um, to, to not only believe this, but want to go and show signs to people. Not, hey, I wish you would change, or I wish you might uh, find a new, new life, but just, you're going to hell. And so people see some of this, and they're like, and they hear some of the doctrines about what hell looks like in certain perspectives in Christianity, and they're like, what is going on? Uh, what do we do with this? And so I thought maybe our, our way into this conversation is just to talk about the development of the afterlife uh, in Jewish-Christian uh, conversations and theology as we see in Scripture as it grows and, and kind of understanding. Uh, because when you read the Old Testament, you don't get a lot of afterlife conversation. It's really hardly there. And it's why when you get to the New Testament, when Jesus is, is discussing things with Pharisees and Sadducees, they point out that the Sadducees don't believe in the afterlife. Uh, and the reason that they don't is so much of the Old Testament has nothing to say about it. Uh, when you look at how big the Old Testament is and it says so little about it, you can understand why some people might interpret it as there's just no afterlife. And so um, there's not much there. In the early days of, of Judaism, uh, the afterlife was having children that your bloodline continuing was what it was to have life go on beyond you. And that's why they put such an emphasis on, if you think about it on the book of Genesis, there's so many stories about uh, the, the pains of, of feeling barren and not being able to have children. Uh, this conversation gets really tough for us in today's world because 
um, we don't share some of that same perspective in the same way. And, and so some of those stories about God bringing children where there was barrenness, uh, that can be joyful for them. But if you're going through the pains of not having children of your own or, or that you're uh, living a life uh, of celibacy or you're living a life of singleness, you're like, you're like, why this emphasis on only about bearing children? Uh, but early on, the, the view of the afterlife was you have kids Go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And your blessings are is that God's going to continue and be with your generation and the next generation, the next generation. When you hear God tell King David, your your throne will be in your family forever. It's saying your line will never end. You will keep having children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and it'll go on forever. And so that's the, the traditional early view of afterlife was simply that God is going to sustain the present generation onward. Uh, then there's some extra stuff that happens that you can especially read in the Psalms, and you might have heard it as I uh, read Psalm 30 earlier. Uh, this teaching about Sheol, anybody heard that word? It's a little weird word, uh, but Sheol is a word that comes up often in the Psalms, and it's this kind of like shadow existence that everybody who dies just kind of doesn't really live, but they're just there. And the psalmist that we read from earlier is like, hey, if I die, I can't sing your praises anymore. Like, the dead don't talk. So God, I really want to celebrate you. Please save me. Give me life because death is, is empty and nothing. And, and what can I do then? And so in Sheol, it's just this kind of everybody goes there and it's shadow existence, which isn't super developed. As you move forward, you get some community resurrection as you get later into the Old Testament. Uh, if you think about the Ezekiel Valley of the dry bones, this, all the dry bones, all of them coming back together, and muscles and ligaments and skin all forming on this body. And maybe, maybe if you hear that story, you might think about that being kind of resurrection of like, hey, I might come back together. Um, but the particular version of that story in Ezekiel is about the community being resurrected that after exile, when you had been destroyed by your enemies, that maybe God might bring us all back together again. And the scattered people throughout the exile might find life again and wholeness again. And so there's only maybe a couple small verses in the Old Testament that gets closer to what the New Testament uh, talks about when it comes to afterlife. And so I've got the quote from Daniel 12, uh, which will feel more at home for those who are more familiar with the New Testament and what it sounded like. Uh, Daniel 12, 2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel's like the, um, the uh, latest addition to the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's very close to the time of the New Testament, so it's not surprising that we start to get a little bit more resurrection feel that feels like the New Testament. And so there's some sort of understanding here that people are going to be raised after they're dead, some are going to get um, some sort of reward or relief or life, and some are going to get uh, the opposite. And so that's the kind of thought world that we get into in the New Testament. Uh, but we don't have time to spend all of our time looking through all of those pictures. Uh, but there's a variety of pictures about what the afterlife looks like, about what heaven or hell looks like. Uh, and all of it is usually filled with metaphors. Because it's like signposts pointing into the unknown. Where you're like, until I experience this, I can't really know it fully. But here's an image. Here's a glimpse of what it's like. It's like the parables. 
You have Jesus telling a story, what's the kingdom of heaven like? And so there's all these kind of images, and it gets really hard if you take them all literally of pushing them all together, because some of the metaphors don't really easily work together. Um, but, but there's a picture that, that there's some sort of life after death and some sort of judgment, some on one side, some on the other. And the messiness of what that looks like uh, is a place for Christian tradition to try to speak into what that looks like. So the, the Christian tradition is like, okay, well, we think what hell means is, and they try to fill in the blank, because it's not always obvious. So I'm going to give you the spectrum of answers before we get in our text today. Uh, on the one end, uh, hell is seen as a place of eternal conscious torment, pain, torture, like a torture room that never ends. Uh, and that's when people have troubles with the view of hell. That's what their troubles are with, is why would God sustain somebody every day forever without ever stopping just in pain. So that's where the challenging situation is. Uh, in the middle ground, some conceptualize hell as some sort of the end of things, of annihilation, of, of some are resurrected to life and some to death, death being just you cease to exist, and hell as uh, nothingness, as disappearing, as vanishing, uh, but not being upheld in painful torture forever. And then on the far end also, uh, that hell could exist, but it is not populated. Uh, that God universally ends up winning and that all knees bow, every tongue confess. Uh, that hell could exist, but is not populated as kind of a universal hope. Um, so there's a lot of options on the table as far as what Christians do with understanding hell. Uh, but I'm, I'm more interested in how the question is, is kind of like, how should Christians respond to an idea like hell? Like, how should we live our lives in relationship to a hard type of, uh, of doctrine and a challenging kind of uh, uh, long-term perspective uh, for those uh, who are not seen as um, on the righteous side of, of all things? Um, let me read for you a story. Uh, this is a story from Luke chapter 16. And this is uh, Jesus telling a parable. He's talking to some Pharisees. And they're talking about how people enter the kingdom of heaven and the, like the value of God's scripture. And Jesus tells a story. And I'll, I'll pause and stop and we'll reflect as we make our way through Luke chapter 16 here. All right. So there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man who was named Lazarus, who was covered with sores and who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. We'll pause there. All right, so we've got a scene, contrasts. One man uh, who's dressed in purple and fine linen. Basically, it's two different styles of being rich and extravagant. Uh, the purple dye being hard, the, like the fine linen is, is wrapped up in these kind of like white garments that are really hard to make too. Um, but he's got both. So it's like, you could be rich with one thing, you could be rich with the other. He's wearing both of those things. Uh, so he is very well dressed and he is eating, uh, feasting sumptuously every day. Uh, I read a thing that was about like meal, like meat access in the ancient world. If you were throwing a feast every day, 
Um, they just took it as, if you could have three-fourths of a pound of beef or meat of some sort, it doesn't have to be beef, if you had three-fourths of a pound of meat every single day of the year, what would that look like in the ancient world? And they said it would take 30 workers' annual salaries um, to be that wealthy to have enough to have that kind of food every day. Uh, we kind of take it for granted. You can go through the drive through line and get access to meat really easily uh, and very cheap ones, though we can talk about uh, uh, nutrition and, and our food industries. But it's not easy to have these feasts every single day in this time. Uh, and he's having feasts every day, dressed to the nines. And at his gate, on the edge of his home, lays a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. So here we get the absolute opposite person's kind of life situation, right? Here we have, uh, on the one hand, the rich man with well-dressed, eating well, and at his gate rests Lazarus, whose who's, his dressing is with pain, right? Well, he's wearing our sores instead of fine clothes. He's, he's hurting, he's aching. And so he's dressed in sores, and he's hungry, just for the scraps. So the rich man, he's got feasts every day, and Lazarus is like, man, if you get some crumbs falling off the table, I'd love to have a bite. And so these are these two parallel existences that live so close to each other in proximity and yet are so separate. And the story goes on. The parable goes on. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. So like the, the poor guy at the gate dies and he has nobody to take care of him. Nobody considers him. Nobody's going to go bury this guy. He doesn't have the money for a burial plot. Uh, the angels show up in the scene as, well, God will take care of you. If people around you won't, let's, let's help this guy. Let's take him away. And so Lazarus is taken away by angels while the rich man gets the, the proper burial. He's buried by friends, presumably. And so the story goes on. This is kind of the weird note for most Christians growing up in church, because the next phrase here is in Hades. And that sounds like Greek philosophy and Greek mythology. Um, the, the background of this is, uh, I, you heard me earlier talk about Sheol, right? Well, in Sheol uh, is the Hebrew term for that shadow existence plane. And when the Hebrew Bible is translated into Greek in the Septuagint, every time that they got to Sheol, they said Hades. Why? It was an easy Greek idea. It's an easy Greek word. Otherwise, they could have like transliterated and tried to figure out how to put into Greek letters Sheol. Um, but they just used Hades. And so they were, they were fine kind of borrowing the Greek views of the world uh, next to them. And so here we're just saying, okay, they died and they're both in Hades, which might sound a little weird to us. And so they're in Hades and the rich man is being tormented. And maybe I'll pause there. In the Greek philosophical Hades, the shadow existence, not everybody was in pain and torture. There was like a lower dungeon, basically, of like, all right, everyone's in Hades, but like, then there's some people who, like, the gods need to punish. And you see a little bit of a conception of that in this story of like, well, some people are in Hades and they're comforted, and some are there and they're being tormented. So like, there's some sort of distinction happening here. So the rich man's being tormented, and he looks up, and he sees Abraham far away. Um, one that's already a little weird. Um, if, if your view of, like, when you think about heaven and hell, 
uh, it's one thing to think that these things exist, but like to see each other and to see someone else in torment feels a little challenging. Um, but, but he sees Abraham, and he sees him far away, and he sees Lazarus by his side. And the rich man calls out, Father Abraham, had many sons, no, sorry, um, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in agony in these flames. There's something hidden in this, in this story, which is the rich man still thinks Lazarus is the slave servant figure of the story. Right? Like, hey, he doesn't say, Abraham, come give me some comfort. Hey, I see you got Lazarus there. Could you send him on an errand for me? Uh, that, that view that Man, our hierarchies that exist in our current world, they must surely still exist on to the next. Hey, Abraham, send send Lazarus to help me, for I'm in agony. And Abraham says, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner received evil things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in agony. Uh, So there's some sort of reversal of fortunes happening in this story. Uh, you, You already had your good thing, uh, now Lazarus gets his good moment. Uh, then it goes on, besides all this, okay, so even if I wanted to help you, uh, between us, there's this great chasm that's been fixed. And so those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. So he's saying, I can't help you. Um, and you should feel okay about it. You already had your good stuff. Uh, Abraham doesn't seem too sympathetic uh, to the rich man in the story. And so the rich man pivots, and then he says, okay, uh, then Father, I beg you, send him, again, still Lazarus. Lazarus is the errand boy for something. Send Lazarus, uh, send him so that uh, you can send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he might warn them so that they may, uh, they may not also come into this place of torment. And so he's like, okay, if I can't get relief, please go tell the people I care about so that they won't come here. And Abraham replies, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. And the rich man says, no, 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 Father Abraham. Uh, I know they have scripture, and I know they should listen to them. But listen, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if even if someone rises from the dead. Um, Obviously, there's also slight illusion about um, Jesus and later other kinds of risings from the dead. But uh, in the story of, you know, they're not going to listen to you. You know that, right? Um, I could send somebody and they, they won't listen. And so this rich man's in this conversation with Abraham saying, I want relief. I can't get it. Okay, well, go tell somebody. What's kind of weird about this story is if, if the story is, I think it's kind of giving us one answer that people give to why have a doctrine of hell. Uh, why talk about hell? Why have a hell? Uh, might, might it deter somebody from doing wrong things? Right? Like if, if there's awful judgment ahead, maybe people won't do bad things because they hear there's going to be really bad consequences. But that just never works. Uh, Abraham in the story is like, listen, they're not going to listen. Even if somebody from the dead comes back and tells them what it's like, they're not going to listen. Uh, if you ask our U.S. Uh, Department of Justice in their own memos, they say uh, longer sentences. It's not actually going to deter anybody from crime. Uh, there's other things that might, but that's just never a factor. That No one gets to that point and thinks, how bad might this work out for me? 
uh, and that changes them. And so uh, that kind of answer of we need a hell just because it might deter people from bad things, it just doesn't ever work um, in our world or, or the next. And so we're left with, okay, well, what do we do here? What do we do with this story? What do we do with Abraham? And, and what, what is our response supposed to be to this kind of situation? Because this kind of sounds hopeless, honestly, in this story. Like if Abraham's like, hey, listen, we gave them scripture. Like even if somebody came back from the dead, I it doesn't matter what proof, they're not going to listen. Well, that sounds hopeless of like, don't we want people to change? Don't we want people to repent? Don't we want people to accept new life? And like, from this vantage point, it sounds like there's no possibility of like, just, it's not going to happen. And that seems so bleak and seems so fixed. And what's kind of interesting is um, Abraham feels more rigid and perhaps more, more set in his ways than some other times we've seen him in scripture. Uh, I think there's a fascinating text that I wanted to, uh, to briefly just kind of summarize for you. Um, if you want to th- listen to how people at that time thought about the afterlife, a really helpful text is a book that shows up in some people's Bibles. Uh, it's, a, it's in what's called the Apocrypha in between the Old and the New Testament. It was uh, Jewish writings in Greek that didn't always find their way into Protestant or other kind of canons. I, I thought it was fun, though. I went into our basement Found this Bible from 1871. Uh, it, it is as old as the sanctuary uh, here. It is massive. You know when you need a lock to hold in your book? Like it's pretty massive. Uh, it has Second Esdras, which is the book I want to talk to you about uh, in it. Um, Second Esdras 7 uh, is a text about kind of this person, Ezra, uh, from the Bible kind of imagined talking to an angel about the afterlife. And the afterlife is explained to him. Like, hey, there's great comfort and rewards, and also there's some judgment and torment. And Ezra throughout this chapter is like, wait, can I ask some more questions, God? Like, wait, why even make humanity? If there's so much suffering, and if so many people are meant for this place, why did you even make us? And all these, like, questions that feel at home with our own time of, like, I don't want to think about what's happening on the other side of this. And so Ezra keeps asking these questions. And I wanted to read you one particular question that he asks because I find it um, fascinating and instructive, uh, maybe for a model. And so Ezra says uh, in the text uh, to the angels, like, hey, if I found favor with you, let me ask you one more question. Whether on the day of judgment, whether the righteous might intercede on behalf of the ungodly or to entreat the most high for them. So he's like, okay, in this scenario, might the righteous stop and say a prayer for those on the other side? Couldn't we ask for some favor? And the angel's like, hey, no, on that day, things are settled. There's no sort of, uh, there's no sort of change on that day. And Ezra says, okay, but let me ask some more. Um, he says, what then? Uh, what then about all of the people that we've seen in Scripture? He said, um, if the defeated shall suffer, as you've said, um, what about Moses? Uh, what about uh, Abraham? Like, Abraham, like, pled over, uh, over uh, here's, I'm just going to read it for you here. 
Uh, how then do we find that Abraham prayed for the people of Sodom and Moses for the ancestors in the, in the desert uh, and Joshua in the days of Israel for Achan and Samuel in the days of Saul and David for the plague and Solomon for those at the, ded- at the dedication and Elijah for those who received rain and and for the one who is dead, that he might live. And Hezekiah prayed for the people in the days of Sennacherib. And many others prayed for many people. So if now when corruption has increased and unrighteousness has multiplied, the righteous have prayed for the ungodly, why will it not be so then as well? Which I find to be such a fascinating question. Because Ezra is looking at scripture and saying, the precedent is for us to care about everybody. That we should pray for people. Like, I'm not supposed to find comfort that suddenly others are going to be tortured in this, this world that you're telling me about. Um, can't I just pray for them? Maybe God will listen to me. And so he calls on Abraham talking about Sodom. And, and in that famous story, uh, God's like, hey, I, Sodom and Gomorrah, they, I found that they're not hospitable. They're, they're going to be punished. And Abraham's like, hey, God, if there's 50 good people, you think you'd spare Sodom? God, if, you, if there's 45 people, if there's 40 people, 30 people, 20 people, God, one more, 10 people, what, would you spare them? And this is like really, uh, you know, bold. Say like God's saying, hey, judgment's coming. And to say, hey, God, maybe you might spare them. Is there a number we can get to? And so Moses does the same thing in the story that, that's recounted of Moses at the golden calf scene. God tells Moses, I'm going to start over again. I'll make a people out of you. Let's leave those people behind. And Moses is like, God, 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 please, they're your people too. And so you have these stories about people who assume God is going to bring judgment down and yet still advocate on behalf of others. And I think that's such a powerful image. And one in contrast to somebody holding up a sign saying you're going to hell. Uh, that's more in line with Jonah, who is delighting at the idea maybe God might actually bring judgment on Nineveh, but who's begrudging the fact that he knows God actually is going to be forgiving. And so he, the whole time he's so upset because God's going to forgive people. And so often in our, our tradition, we have Jonahs who are ready to pronounce judgment, who are ready to take kind of glee that that, you know, I'm victorious, I'm right, you're wrong, and God agrees. And we too often don't want to be the Jonahs uh, at the end of, like, having to try to come to realization. Hopefully he came to realization. Um, How many of us want to be the Abraham and plead for the other? How many of us want to be Moses and plead for the other? And so I think the way Christians should respond into this, into the afterlife, into the kind of judgment is to always be hopeful that God might have mercy, to always be hopeful that maybe somebody might repent, always to be hopeful that maybe there might be new life, a new opportunity. And so we still hold that there's consequences and there's pain, all things we want to be rid of, all things that we long for God to heal and restore. But like, what is it to be a people uh, that advocates for a better uh, fullness of life for all? And so uh, when I think about that psalm we read from earlier, it said uh, very powerfully, for God's anger is but for a moment, his favor for a lifetime. And in that psalm, it was meant at the top, 
Um, it says a psalm of David uh, at the dedication of the temple. Now, that moment at the dedication of the temple to talk about death, to talk about life, to talk about God's favor, like what is it to see us as a community, us as a church, as being a community in which we advocate uh, as, as a priesthood of all, you know, that all people are priests and, and bring people to God. And we all go on behalf of one another. We, we bring people together. Um, and so instead of talking down, instead of uh, hoping for, for pain, what is it to be a priest to everybody that you meet, uh, to try to bring them into contact with God? And also to talk to God and ask, God, may your judgment uh, be withheld. May you find mercy. May you find uh, forgiveness for this person. And I think there's such a beauty in being uh, that kind of model of someone who wants to bring life and bring opportunity and hope. Uh, and we don't know what that, the end point of all of this fully looks like. Uh, but we can be people like the people we've seen uh, modeled in Scripture. Be like Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Of what is it to be a community and to be, a, a, be people who are radically loving, radically forgiving? Uh, what is it to be like, you know, that community in Pennsylvania, the Amish community that was able to find forgiveness uh, for that school shooter? Uh, when it's not easy to do that. Uh, what is it to be like that uh, Emmanuel uh, AME church in, in Charleston, South Carolina? who welcomed in a guest to their Bible study and then were, uh, had to deal with the person murdering many of their church members. And to turn around and still try to figure out how to offer forgiveness and healing in the midst of such awful pain. Like, what is it to be people who, who go on behalf of others uh, to heal instead of inflict more pain in a world of pain? So I have a few uh, things that I want to just suggest that maybe you're, you might take away and wrestle with throughout this week. What is it to keep faith in the faithfulness of God? Because I think for a lot of Christians, we have a view of God that we think just kind of ends at some point. God, you're so loving, you're so forgiving, you're so merciful, except when you're about to just take everybody out. Uh, and so there's some 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 discrepancies that we think, okay, God is one way, but, but not forever. And so the way we talk about Jesus is Jesus is so loving, but for some people, Jesus is actually the rider on the white horse in Revelation. Uh, never mind that he has a sword, that's his mouth. Um, but we want to literally say he's going to mow down his enemies. And what is it to say that God is faithful, that God, who God has revealed himself as will always be who God is, and that God won't deviate uh, but will always be good and just and loving. What is it to love relentlessly, to never give up on love, to always support one another, to always be patient, kind, and good to even your enemies? And lastly, what is it to pray persistently, that you might pray on, not just for yourself. You know, the rich man in the story, at first he wants to start with, hey, uh, I'd like some relief. But what is it to be people who pray for others? Uh, who want to intercede, want to speak on behalf of others, uh, and who in our lives are the people at the gates that we don't see that not only need those prayers, but also need just to be loved and to be helped and to be served and to be noticed. And so uh, in, in a world where people might get fixated on 
um, who's right and who's wrong, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. Uh, we got to defeat our enemies, um, and we see each other in growing kind of divisiveness. What is it to love and to pray for each other? And so that's my invitation of, uh, that, that God extends to us is that you are loved and you can then have safety to love others as well. And so would you just join me in prayer? Lord God, I ask that you might uh, give us eyes to see uh, the people that we've, that we've hurt, the people that we've let down, the people who go unnoticed at our gates. Lord, help us to be uh, transformed fully by your words so that we might bring life and we might bring hope in this, in this day and age. Lord, we ask that you might also help us to uh, ask for forgiveness for all the times that we've fallen short. And Lord, help us to extend that forgiveness out and help, help us to find your mercy, empowering us to give mercy to others around us. Lord, I just ask that you would continue to reshape our hearts so that we might love even when it's not easy, and we might find joy and, and security in your loving embrace. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.